Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm sharing from a Bible study series, The Rich Man and Lazarus. This is part two of a three-part series. I hope you enjoy it. All right, uh, next week we will probably finish up this parable. We will finish the parable up. We'll, next week we're going to look at the we're going to look at the uh, at Lazarus and what we learn about heaven. And then we're also going to consider the significance of the the five brothers uh, that Lazarus wants to go and warn. So that's what we'll do next week. And then we'll meet one more week, and then we'll have Leachman uh, the week of the twentieth, or excuse me, it's on the twentieth, which is that would be the week of the sixteenth. So I hope you'll find somebody to bring. I've talked to Jerry. He's, he's, this is one of the few. T- he's already got the message prepared. Um, that's really, sometimes he doesn't prepare until the night before. Sometimes it's on the way to, over to the club. And seriously, one time he got halfway through his message and decided to change it. So um, very unique. He's got it prepared. So I, I think it's going to be a really good message. Um, and that will be November the 20th. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the, uh, the parable and make a few brief remarks on what we talked about last week and then kind of launch into uh, this morning's lesson. This is uh, Luke uh, chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And the longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now last week, we spent most of our time considering the issue of hell and what we can learn about hell from the scriptures. Not only from the scriptures, but from this parable, because it clearly... We learn it's a place of agony. It's a place of torment. It's a place that no one really would ever want to end up. And then we ended last week by considering, or really asking the question, if that is true, if there is everlasting torment, then 
what should our lives be about, particularly as we consider those in our lives who may not have a relationship with Christ, and just our responsibility. Now this morning, I want to focus on the rich man and Lazarus, because of a question that kind of kept, would, would keep coming up as we read, read last week as we read this parable is, <clears throat> did the rich man go to hell because he was indifferent to the poor? And the answer to that is no. Did he go to hell because he was rich? And the answer to that is no. Or did the poor man go to heaven because he was humble and poor? And the answer is no. And we're going to look at what we learned from this parable as far as uh, where these men ended up. Now, Keller said, Tim Keller says that when you ever you read a parable, and I, I, I've gone and checked, and this is pretty much true, that to really understand the meaning of the parable, you got to go and look at who is Jesus speaking to when he gives out a parable, when he teaches a parable. And so in this particular instance, we need to go back to verses 14 and 15, because what does he say? What do we learn there in verses 14 and 15? It says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And you know, guys, if you read the Gospels closely and carefully, what you realize is that you can really learn a lot about the Pharisees. A lot is revealed about the Pharisees. Uh, one of the things that we note is that they were very self-righteous. And you see that in Luke 18. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We know that they love to be honored by men. We read that last week. They love to be recognized. And at one point, I remember this is the one that really kind of gets me that I think is very revealing, is Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. What is a white, why would he use that term? What's a whitewashed tomb? Yeah, it's painted. It's, it looks great on the outside, but on the inside, it's just full of bones. In other words, you look, they look great on the outside, but inside, in their innermost being, they are spiritually dead. And here in Luke 16, we learn that the Pharisees, they loved money. In fact, they were quite wealthy. They had, all the, they had a lot of power in this culture. Even though it was ruled by the Romans, the Romans kind of looked to the religious leaders to run the show. They were in power. And therefore, they were in a position to accumulate great wealth. And so here we learn they love money, but we also learn that they didn't think much of Christ. It says they scoffed at him. Some translations say they sneered at him. So if you read the, the Gospels and you did a study of the Pharisees, you would learn a lot about them. And Jesus did not hold them in very high regard. But I think one of the things that we should recognize in this is that as we focus in on this rich man, I think he is somewhat of a picture 
of what Jesus describes in Mark chapter 8. He really asks a question. Keep your finger in Luke and turn back to Mark 8, if you would. Mark 8. We're going to look at verses 36 and 37. Steve Bishop, would you read those for us? Mark 8, 36 and 37. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This, I think, describes the rich man. I think this describes a lot of men that we probably rub shoulders with. I mean, think of the people you know that are really out there trying to conquer the world or gain the world, so to speak. And the thing that you have to recognize is that how many men or women are out there who have no idea that if something doesn't change, they are in the process of forfeiting their souls for all eternity. And that seems to be, I really do think this is one of God's great warnings in this parable. He's saying, don't let the pursuit of wealth blind you to judgment day issues. Because that's what happened. Remember Proverbs 11.4? It says, riches do not profit. They will not profit you in any way on the day of wrath. And this is why I believe Jesus says that rich people have a hard time getting into heaven. It's not because they're rich. It's because of the pursuit of wealth and the attainment of wealth blind them, and they have no idea that they are forfeiting their soul. It's like there's this trade-off. And I think it's quite clear, guys, if a person gains the world and forfeits his soul, his loss is great. It's eternal. Because, and you see it in this parable that we're reading, that such a choice is final. Death closes the door to God's grace. Because what do we read in verse 26? Between us and you, there is a great chasm that is fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And so at this point, as we read this, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. Psalm 49.8 says that the redemption of a man's soul is costly. And the price that one will pay will never suffice. You have nothing that you can pay in exchange for your soul, for the redemption of your soul. The only thing... There's only one thing in life that can redeem a man's soul, and that's the blood of Christ. That's it. And it was very costly to God. And we're the great benefit beneficiary. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. We learn this in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, we're not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Let me stop here. Anybody have a comment or question? Anything I've said? I'm not like you. 
So true. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is easy to kind of gang up and beat up on these Pharisees and think, I'm glad I'm not like them. Isn't that what the, what the uh, Pharisee says in that parable? I'm glad I'm not like other men, swindlers, adulterers, even that tax gatherer over there. I tithe, I fast, I do all this. Anybody else? Well, before we move forward, I want to stay kind of focused on this rich man for a minute because I think um, we should ask, what is the right perspective then on money so that I'm not blinded by it? Maybe we ought to ask, am I blinded? Well, let's, let's do this. Let's go back to Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew. And then we're going to turn to the Old Testament real briefly. Matthew chapter uh, 6 Verses 19 and 20. Ben, how about, would you read those for us? Matthew 6, 19 through 21. These are verses we're all familiar with. All right, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, we're all familiar with these verses. We've, we, I've taught on them before. But I think what's even more significant are the next two verses, which when people read it, they, they scratch their head saying, I, I don't really know that I understand what he's saying. Ben, we haven't read those two, 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be in darkness. If then the light within if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What is that about? Gary Gary's a good student. What do you look your eye is your perspective. It filters what's coming into your the way you look at things. It's it's your perception of reality. It's the lens through which you see life. And Jesus is saying that it's critical that your perspective, your perception of reality, is rooted in God's truth. Because when it is, it says your life will be full of light. You'll see clearly, particularly as it relates to money and wealth. He said, but if your perception of reality is rooted in falsehood, then your life will be full of darkness. And you'll stumble and you'll fall through life. But he makes this reference right after he talks about money. And I think what we see in this parable is, this, this is true of this rich man. He walked in the darkness. His perception of reality was, was rooted in falsehood. So, guys, it's crucial that we have an, ec- an accurate perception on money and wealth and have an accurate perception on its place in our lives and its role in the eternal. So what is the right perspective? 
What is the perspective that's rooted in God's truth? Well, probably in my, there's, a, there's a lot of teaching on this, but I think maybe the best picture of a man who got it right was David at the end of his life. Now, we've looked at this before. It's been a while, but we've looked at this before. But I want to ask you to turn back to the Old Testament to 1 Chronicles. And while we're doing that, does anybody have a comment or question? I think um, I know David talks about it in that verse that passes us. Uh, the perspective is that God owns everything, and that we're simply a steward of it. And, you know, a steward is a manager of someone else's affairs, and uh, you do that to, to, to benefit that person. Whatever you do, whatever decision you make, it's to benefit that person. Yeah, in fact, Gary just kind of stole my thunder here, but that's okay. <laughs> but he's right. It's kind of like if you were a money manager and say uh, some elderly person who doesn't know how to manage money says, here, I want you to manage this for me. That's kind of what he's, that's kind of what a steward is. He doesn't own it. He's just managing. Is everybody in First Chronicles 29? This is, David is about to die. In fact, he dies in this chapter. And is at the end of his life, and this is a time when Israel is kind of at its zenith. It's powerful militarily, economically, spiritually, morally. Israel is in a good place, but he's getting ready to hand the baton off to Solomon. But he gathers the assembly together, and look at what he says. Verses 10 through 16. Jim Goria, you want to read that for us? First Chronicles 29, 10 through 16. And as Jim reads, ask yourself, what can we learn from David's words about the right perspective on money and wealth? Jim. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth, are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O oh, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. This is a prayer. So David is, is offering this prayer to God because what David first and foremost recognizes that everything he has comes from the hand of God. And as we've said, this is a key 
to being humble. Because if you don't see everything as coming from the hand of God, you, when anything goes your way, you think, I did this. Look how great I am. One part of his prayer is he says, and we give you thanks. How often do you thank God for the resources that he's entrusted you with? I mean, do, do we really give him thanks? Do we acknowledge this comes from your hand and I am grateful? I think that's critical, guys. If on a daily basis, whatever you have, you should be really thankful for it and acknowledge that. The key, I think the key is in verse 16, when he says right at the very end, he says, you have, we talked about this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name. It's from your hand. And then what does he say? All is yours. Again, do we see that? Do we recognize that? That all of this is ultimately his. Let me read to you from Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. This, this, is, this is God talking. And this is what he says about everything in this life. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. You know, guys, what he's saying there, all of your assets are not truly yours. You know, you can lose everything you have. And it can happen if God pleases or desires for it to happen. And the quickest way to separate a man from his wealth is to take you out of this life. And then you're separated from it. Isn't that what Jesus is inferring in that parable? I think it's in uh, Luke 12, the rich fool. You know, the rich fool plans on storing up all this. He's going to tear down his barns, and, and, and then he's going to say at the end of the day, you can take it easy. You're secure. You can eat, drink, and be merry. And what does Jesus then say about it? He calls him what? You fool, for this very night your soul may be required of you. And then who will own all that you possess? So, if in fact all that we have ultimately is God's, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that. Lord, this is all yours. You've entrusted me with it. And so if it's all His, what does that make us? Well, as Gary said, we're stewards. We're managers. And so that's a really good question that we need to step back and ask. How well are we managing God's resources that have been entrusted to us? In fact, isn't that kind of what he says back right before he shares this parable in Luke 16? In Luke 16, 11, what does he say? He says... Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? So this is a big issue. Managing the resources that God has entrusted to us. Comments? Anybody? Uh, that, there's another great prayer. 
That's a oh, that, Psalm 39 is is one of my favorite psalms, and um, it reminds me Solomon. He even says that in Ecclesiastes, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once I die, who's going to know whether a wise man or a fool is going to have it? But it's, he says it's all vanity. Anybody else? You know, Richard, I think what's going on here is this illusion that if we have enough money, we can be like God and be in control. So, I mean, it's just it's, it's idolatry. You think we're going to stack it up, like you said, I'm going to tear down these barns and build three more. And then three this, and you're like a rich man saying, man, where did I go wrong? Amen. Yeah. I like what Billy Graham says about money. He says, if a person gets his heart and attitude about money straight, it'll help him straight out almost every other area of his life. I think he's right. If we get this right, then it impacts so many other areas of our lives. But if we are blinded by it, it too impacts all the other areas of our lives in a negative way, in a destructive way. Because if you think about it, and you know this, Money can really be used for a lot of good things, even good things for your family. But on the other hand, the Bible doesn't really talk as much about that as it, as it does warn us about its corrupting influence. Because you think about it, though money can be used for a lot of good things, if money corrupts you, if it corrupts your wife, if it corrupts your kids, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. And so it's important that we get this right and really apply a lot of what David prayed in his prayer. Anybody else? Well, we're going we're gonna to move on and really look at, at the rich man and, and Lazarus and, and gain an understanding of why they ended up where they ended. Anybody? Well, go back in Luke 16 in the parable, go back to verse 25 where, it said, where he says, you know, during... Your life, you receive good, th we're going to focus on the rich man. You receive good things. And Keller says in a sermon that he gave on this parable is that this is the same language, the word good, that the Greek philosophers used as they debated what is the ultimate good in life? What is the summum bonum, the ultimate good? And they debated this. What is the ultimate good in life? What is the thing we should be living for? And I think this is what this parable is all about. But guys, it's hard to see it if you don't understand the terms that are used to describe these two men. As I mentioned last week, though we didn't really delve into it, is that the poor man is given a name. This is the only parable where someone is given a name. And the name that he is given is very intentional. The name Lazarus. Because Lazarus, the word Lazarus literally means God is my 
help. God is my help. And so clearly, Lazarus represents the person who lives with a dependence on God, particularly for his salvation. I mean, this is, you know, we've been talking about this over the last few weeks. So many people depend on themselves for their salvation, for their works. But this word Lazarus literally means, no, I depend completely on God, particularly for my salvation. And so for Lazarus, though he was poor, his ultimate good, his ultimate help was God. And therefore, Lazarus built his life and his identity on God himself. But when you consider the rich man, we see something else. He's just known as the rich man. And that's the only time you really see that term in a parable. He was the rich man. The rich fool, we just call him that. He was just, he was called fool. He wasn't called rich. But he had great wealth because he, he had a prosperous business going. But this rich man completely built his life around his wealth. You see, the rich man doesn't have a name because that's all he is. He has built his life on his wealth, and if his wealth is gone, his identity is gone. And I think this happens so easily to men in our culture. Because think about when a man loses his job, or maybe loses his title, or loses his business, or his wealth is depleted. It can so easily destroy a man because it makes them feel like my life now doesn't have any value anymore. It doesn't have any worth anymore because they've lost their identity. Listen to what Keller says. He says, if you build your identity on anything but God and then something jeopardizes that thing, or something goes wrong in that area, you're not just unhappy, there's no you left. That means you don't feel valuable. And you don't know what you're living for. You don't even know who you are because what happens in your life, there is an identity meltdown. And I don't know about you, but I've seen that happen, particularly when we went through this last economic downturn. Men who had so much who never thought they would ever lose it lost everything. Any questions? Any comments? I want to make one final observation on this rich man. It's very important. And it's in verse 24. And he said, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in the flame." Now, while living on earth, the rich man was kind of on top, and Lazarus was on the bottom of the heap. Now that's completely reversed. But what do you notice about the rich man? Yeah, he's, he's ordering, he's, send Lazarus to me. He's, ordering, he's giving orders. He's still clinging to his status as a rich man. There's a guy by the name of Joel Green who is a very prominent Bible scholar, and he wrote a commentary 
uh, on the book of Luke. And listen to what he says about this rich man. He says, it's astonishing the level of denial, the level of out of touch with reality you see here in this rich man's life. Obviously, on the one hand, the man is depicted as understanding that he is in torment. He says, I'm in agony. But on the other hand, he's absolutely blind to what has actually happened to him. He's completely in denial about what's happened. He still thinks he's in charge. He's still holding to that old identity factor, his status, his place, his position. You see, nothing's changed. And you know what else? Notice he doesn't, he's not asking to get out of there. He clearly understands repentance because he says, if you send someone from the, from the dead, maybe my brothers will then repent. So he understands repentance, but you don't see any of that in his life. He still has the same identity. You know, I was reading the other morning in Psalm 86, and in verse 5, it says, God is ready. He is ready to forgive. He wants to forgive. It goes on to say, he wants to surround us with his loving kindness. But he's, then it goes on and says, but he only gives it to those who cry out to him. And you don't see this in this rich man. And that's why I, I think Keller's right. He said, hell is just your freely chosen false identity that will go on forever. Anybody want to comment on this question? Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that Lazarus, his name is Lazarus either, because he talked about if anybody rises from the dead, you know, and of course he raises Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. That's a good point. That's a great point. You know, one thing I think about is Paul talks about how he was trying to do what he wanted. And it seems to be talking about what the right attitude for among the musicians is being a steward, having that sort of light grasp on what you are, so that it was bad or not bad, you're going to stay the course. Amen. And that's why, and this is, you know, one of the prayers that I pray almost daily, Jim, is, is, is right on what you just said. Is, and I encourage you to pray this prayer, is Hebrews 13, 5. It says, let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And pray and ask that God would deliver you from any, lo any love that you have of money that's, that's improper. And, and that you... It is. It is. Um, well, it says, but in verse 25, yeah. mine says, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that shows still compassion, still there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't notice that. That's a good point. We're going to focus on, next week, we're going to focus on Lazarus. So we'll come back to that. I, I'll look into that, Steve. Anybody else? All right, well, I want to leave us with C.S. Lewis's words. I read this two weeks ago, and I want to make a couple of comments on it. Because I think this is very appropriate as we look at this rich man. He says, in the long run, the answer 
to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking him to wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? Well, he's done that. This is what he did at Calvary. This is what he did at the cross. To forgive them? He says they won't ask for forgiveness. So to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what is just what he must do. Because that's what hell is, complete separation from God. To be and so that they are completely left alone, bereft of him and his presence. And C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> in what I just read to you, really is saying what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, verse 24, where he says, God gave them up <clears throat> so they could follow their desires. He gave them up so that they could follow their desires. In other words, all God does is give people what they want most. And he's saying, if you want to build your life around something else, if you want to live this life without me, I'll let you. I'll let you. And that's why Lewis asks, what could be more fair? What could be more fair? You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.